This podcast is intended solely for educational purposes and presents information of a general nature. It is not intended to guide or determine any specific individual situation and persons should consult qualified professionals before taking specific action. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not those of Milliman. Hello, and welcome to Critical Point, brought to you by Milliman. I'm Darren Harris, and I'll be your host today. In this episode of Critical Point, we're going to be talking about healthcare waste. Milliman has a unique perspective on healthcare waste and is working with clients to minimize waste and reduce unnecessary costs across the American healthcare system. Joining us today are three members of our Med Insight team Jackie Sayer, Marcos Dackery, and Dr. David Merkin. Jackie, you want to kick us off? I wanted to start by talking to Dr. Merkin um, and getting your perspective as a physician on the history of waste and how you've encountered waste in the past. Sure. So, you know, currently I don't practice, so I'm working as the chief medical officer of MedInsight. However, when I did practice, I practiced in rural Idaho, and uh, the way I encountered waste, I think it's probably a little different than most physicians because my patients uh, didn't have health insurance. You know, they, they were farmers, because I was in rural Idaho, they were farmers, dairy people, and, and actually fairly well-off people, but they, didn't, they were individuals and they decided they didn't uh, want to purchase individual health insurance. So the way I encountered waste is they would come in and they would say, you know, is this particular service, what's it cost? And do my kids or do I really need it? Uh, and so I had to begin to learn how much things cost and essentially what the risk was of not doing things, sort of an early uh, exposure to what we now call low-value services. If it was something that really wasn't going to deliver much value to my patients, uh, we would skip it. I would talk to them about it. Can you speak a little bit more about that, uh, the difference between, I mean, how physicians view healthcare waste versus how probably the rest of the healthcare industry views, views that waste? Well, I think that, you know, medicine is not a perfect science. So, so even though out of 100 physicians, probably 95 might consider a particular service delivered in a particular situation as being unnecessary medically, meaning it's, quote, waste, there are five who would not agree with that uh, uh, opinion. And so for those five, you know, this not only is uh, necessary, but it also provides income to them. It's very common among specialties because, again, there's a lot of disagreement and uh, among specialists uh, regarding what services are necessary. If you're familiar with Choosing Wisely, when it started, uh, you know, various specialties were asked to identify, you know, wasteful services. And, of course, the first specialty to do so identified services done by other specialties. And the second specialty did the same. So, essentially, they're all pointing fingers elsewhere. Um, so uh, I think the industry perceives waste as now being uh, very pertinent. We're talking about 18% of the GDP. So one of the things, you know, again, Dr. Merkin, your perspective was on uh, providers, but I think this is a much bigger picture, and I think we're seeing it now. Uh, well, hopefully the, the country is seeing it as well uh, in a bigger extent. Can you both uh – discuss why it's so important to start identifying waste in a more meaningful way? Um, I'll take the first stab at this. 
So my background is really from what we call the payer side. So I, I used to, before joining uh, Millman and Men Inside, I was a corporate medical director for a large uh, staff model health insurance company. And one of the things you know that we were always trying to do is we viewed ourselves as stewards of of people's money who buy health who buy insurance for health care we want to try to provide them as much health care as we could for a given for a given given price so if there's waste uh, in being delivered by the health care delivery system we have to pay for that and essentially that then goes into how we would deliver how we would calculate premium to charge people for health insurance and you know if you followed uh you know, it was pre- previously uh, when the percent of GDP being spent on health care was in the low teens, it was – we were told that that was unsustainable and that there was going to be a huge collapse of the economy because of that. Well, now I think we're up to 20 percent, perhaps a little bit more. It doesn't seem to be stopping, so it seems like the that that's on an ever-increasing uh, – growth trend and that nothing's going to stop it unless we do something about the services underneath. Uh, so I, that's one reason I think waste is very important. I think another reason that actually Marcos uh, continues to promote is that unnecessary services potentially have downstream consequences. If you get a test you don't need, If you uh, typically there's a 5% roughly chance for lab tests, for example, that they're going to be outside the normal range. So if you get one test, it's unlikely that you're going to get an abnormal value just from you know variation. But if you do 20 tests, then the chances are pretty good that one of them will be outside the normal range, which then typically requires follow-up. Sometimes the follow-up uh, ends up being procedures. Some Those procedures have complications in addition to being unnecessary expenses for somebody. They have potential complications for patients, so there is iatrogenic harm uh, due to wasteful, to services that shouldn't have been delivered. I, I think that's good. I think what I was going to add there, David, was, was um, you know, simply put, we have uh, three buckets of harm. So what are the consequences? Emotional harm, uh, while there's a waiting period for results to come back, uh, what do I going to do? Uh, there's a uh, physical harm. Am I being irradiated or am I being poked or prod by a procedure? And, and there's going to be affordability. So we start with the financial harm and can we afford the – how many copays can we have? How many caregivers can we get to take care of our kids? Well, we have to find uh, – uh, uh, we have to go across town to get an image and get pay for parking and miss work maybe. So there's that sort of aspect of the harm um, but I think it's also pertinent to talk about the the five percent of tests that become outside of range. I think it's interesting that when we come back to uh, increasing consumer education about healthcare, and know that some would argue that evidence-based medicine really started becoming more of a, a workflow as as only as recent as the maybe early '90s, late '80s, when you had more of a guideline-driven methodology. So, uh, physician, uh, this respect for res- for physicians is definitely necessary. However, understanding that there's going to be a lot of false positives is a a difficult concept for most people to grasp, and therefore we need to change the expression of the consequences to be 
either in these buckets of emotional, uh, physical, or affordable harm. And I think that's pertinent nowadays. And I think we're getting there with the amount of tools and the digitalization of healthcare when we can see um, uh, with a swipe of an app, our, our healthcare providers, our, these insurance companies do tell us that our prescription costs uh, $5 at Walmart and $15 at CVS or $20 at the mom and pop that's conveniently located on your corner. But understanding when, uh, so that's step one is we're starting to see some more transparency, but understanding the bigger picture in partnership with a provider about uh, uh, when these things are going to be inconclusive and that we shouldn't be worried about a high rate of false positives. That's the next evolution in terms of uh, the partnership between not only uh, depending on the provider, we have we got to have to get away from the provider being the sole arbiter of your health. You need to have a stakeholder as a patient, and you need to understand with the provider, with the insurance carrier, what your ramifications are for affordability. A doctor can't understand what you can and can't afford. They can tell you a local price, but they don't understand your insurance and where you are in paying your deductible. So. I think it's good that the debate is getting larger, I hope, uh, but it also, uh, the wild card that we, we have not seen too much on is on the consumer side. And I think that, uh, unfortunately, if we have to figure out how to get to the consumer, and if the expression is physical harm, mental ang uh, emotional anguish, that may not have resonated for everyone, but uh, when the numbers get so absorbent the pocketbook starts to uh, resonate with a lot more people, and I think we're there. So given that um, idea of, of harm to the patient, uh, as well as what we were talking about before with you know providers not necessarily always being on board because they feel that maybe uh, a procedure is necessary because the insurance will pay for it or for whatever other reason, it sounds like it's really difficult to try to impact healthcare waste. And so I guess I'm just wondering how how can we really do this? I think your question is can we do something about it? Yeah. And the answer is yeah. Uh, but first you need to be able to identify it. You know, again, I think uh, if you take the example of of paneled lab tests. So you were at one point you used to order lab tests individually. And then the idea was, well, for convenience sake, plus also it was cheaper, you could order a panel of tests, and you can order different kinds of panels. Some have 10 tests, some have 20 tests, et cetera. And that was all put in place for convenience and cost savings at one point. Uh, but now we know that some of those tests in the panel are unnecessary, so they're waste. So I think it's educating the providers and patients about that. Um, and, and then also highlighting which one of those tests are, are waste, are unnecessary, and providing that information transparently you know, to providers and I guess to consumers at some point. Um, and we actually have seen examples of when that's done. And you know, that when that's done and, and, and in an ideal situation, when there's the either real you know, the reality is that there's a consequence to having uh, waste. You know, if you're a physician, to having waste that somehow is, uh, is accountable to your behavior. 
uh, or just Im implying that there could be a consequence to that, we've seen organizations actually reduce waste. So the answer is yes, you can do something you know, uh, uh, about it. Yeah, and I'll go one step in addition to that. I think we're starting out um, with the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, with individual services that are very high volume, pap smears, EKGs. That's something that we've been, David and I have been working on uh, lately quite a bit. But, um, you know, about the future and, and about the lack of evidence that we have right now for the more nuanced sort of procedures, uh, the, the, the world is ripe. I think with the amount of pr the proliferation of data and this uh, concern about what does the future have in, sto install for us, in store for us, I think it's uh, super bright in terms of we need more analysts. We're going to need more. There was a good article in the New York Times about um, this biobank, and the data collection was, uh, was tremendous. And the assets and, and whether you're talking about images and uh, dental x-rays and blood pressure readings and your race and ethnicity – and this whole culmination of data, well, what it came down to, that takes a lot of money and a lot of effort, and that's actually the easy bit. The hard part is how do you convey this? Do you need ethicists, uh, ethical minds to come in and convey genetic sort of footprints? And when we get into more complicated waste, uh, I think the world is our oyster. I think there's a tremendous amount of out there. Uh, I think it's going to take data, and it's going to take um, a, 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 an army of people in the future to help us call together uh, a uh, a, a combination of, of big data and machine learning combined with uh, scientists to uh, regression against that and understand that there is uh, uh, the data alone is not the answer. It's got to be combined with uh, scientists. And um, I think, in, so in summary, I think in the short term, uh, we're fighting the good fight and laying the foundation for changing behavior about simple care that is of low value. And I think that's a the step in the right direction to the more complicated world where there's uh, less procedures, they're more nuanced, and there's going to be a targeted population, and how do we uh, make those efficient? And um, on that, the final note I'll say there is I read a good article yesterday in the Boston Globe headlines about the proliferation of knee and hip replacements. It's, it's astounding how many um, knees and hips are going on in the country right now, tenfold uh, increases since 2012. And the, the cool thing I saw in the article, you know, I'm going to question who, are, who the, are the right people getting those or too many people getting them, are they high value? But stepping back from that question, the cool thing was is the manufacturers of the replacements are actually figuring out how to slightly customize, think of it as kind of like a um, 3D printer, they're customizing these joint replacements to have maximum uh, longevity. So they're already a step ahead of us because they're incentivized to get their joint replacements out there. So they're already figuring out the nuance of the populations to get maximize the amount of people getting the joint replacement. So now we need to also step back and use those techniques and make sure the right people are getting them and we don't have uh, too many people getting them because uh, the consequences are, are, are big and drastic in terms of uh, it's not just the, the operation. It's do you have a change in your diet, a change in your exercise pattern, change in your lifestyle that's going to make that joint replacement a successful outcome. So, I just wanted to add one thing to my previous comments about can you do anything about waste. I think most physicians um, – 
are, I think once they understand that a particular decision that they may have been uh, taught to do in their residency or, or somewhere along the line or uh, it, that it is not appropriate from a value perspective, you know, it, it truly is waste, I think the majority of them actually will change their practice patterns if, if, as long as they, they know that they're doing this. If you ask them, do you do this, the answer often is no or once in a while, but I think what they don't know is they don't see how, how frequent it actually is. And so I do think it's very important that we create ways to identify, measure, and, and benchmark you know, the amount of waste going on in a particular physician's practice. Yeah, I'd say my favorite fun fact on that is um, uh, the the writing of prescription drugs by providers. They don't realize that um, there's actually studies that show uh, the the amount of prescription drugs written after lunch when a provider starts to get tired and later in the week increases. So you need to remind them. They, they are benevolent. They just need aids, and we need to figure out workflow to be to get integrate so the physician understands that um, yeah you know I might have done that once or twice but then you show them a report oops I did it ten times and oh oops it was actually when I'm rushing to get to see my child at school at five in the afternoon to a soccer game or something like that they're humans so we just need these aids and I think right now with um, the ACE the the Obamacare with that great incentive to uh, get digitization out to all practices, even in rural areas. Now we got to, that was, that was step one. Now we got to figure out how to make that efficient and get these, the providers will make the right choice, but they're, uh, they're overwhelmed with information. And now we need to figure out how to make that efficient in the delivery. And then, and then the knock-on effect will be uh, these efficiency gains with low value care being rooted out. But we have to tell them where to start and they have to be incentivized too. The other thing, and um, good road ahead. Uh, I want to get back to this idea of clinical nuance and how difficult it might be to actually identify low-value care. You guys have both kind of touched on that a little bit, but can you expand more on how difficult it is to identify and figure out where the low-value care is? Well, I actually don't think it's that difficult. I, it, it, I think uh, there's two perspectives to responding to that question. The first perspective is, you know, can you, rec can you recognize it as a practitioner? So again, there are uh, organizations, for example, Choosing Wisely, that have identified, you know, services that are wasteful in particular clinical situations. That is actually pretty easy for a practicing physician, if, they, if they're aware of that, to recognize when they're seeing a patient. You know, you see a patient, he or she is 40 years old. They, uh, they, they have a particular clinical history which you either can uh, inquire about from them or you actually have that you know, in your electronic medical record or paper medical record. Um, and so you actually can recognize that and understand its waste, and, and, and that's pretty easy. From a population base or systemic approach, trying to get uh, identify waste from various administrative data sources is harder, and you can't do it for all services that have been identified as wasteful, but you can do it for a lot, and I'm going to let Marcos chime in here because he actually is an expert in doing that. 
you know, we we lean we learn from and glean upon uh, the thought leadership from the physician societies that dictate again this low hanging fruit of of um, uh, a test which for you in your circumstances is high value and me in my circumstances is needless and low value and wasteful. So I think the the roadmap is there, and I would agree it's pretty simple. Uh, I would go one step further and say it's an incentive problem. And I think that's a good way Milliman plays a role, is to accentuate that the, ex- the incentives need to be aligned for both the insurance company and the provider and the third leg of the stool, which would be the consumer or the purchaser. Uh, so that's uh, so. I think clinically we agree and we're getting thought leadership from, from the physician societies themselves. I think the next step is really to talk about what are the right incentives based on the the gamut of priorities everyone has and how do you make that uh, a higher priority for your cause obviously we all want to make our cause the highest priority but uh, at what what are, what is low value competing with and in certain circumstances if we're talking about an EKG or again an, an additional test on a panel for labs uh, it's still one blood draw it's 10 more tests so how do you measure that? Is it uh, the pathologist's time? Is it the patient's time? They're going to get the draw anyway, and it's the insurance company paying for it. So that's the some of the rub is is thinking about the next generation of what is the incentive to get uh, the the to. I think we're fine with identifying the clinical nuance of when it's low value. It's now getting the incentives and the information to act upon it. So I would agree with David on that. Can you expand a little bit more on the idea of incentives? Um, you know, are we asking health insurance companies to provide incentives to providers? Like, what does that look like? Well, I'll start with the traditional actuarial approach, which is uh, something as simple as cost sharing. So, if we increase the burden, the, you know, the premise has been in the last, particularly five years, uh, you know, the penetration of high deductible health plans is far exceeds twenty percent. So the, the tool that's been used, that the blunt instrument that we have in this country has been to push the burden of expense to the purchaser and let them figure it out and let them ben- and break. And what we've seen is they have broke. They've answered. They're not getting services. And uh, so we do need to study a little bit more uh, of when low, our low-value services, um, can they be de-incentified? I think right now the hypothesis is no all services are being treated equally because uh, the consumer doesn't know. Uh, so, again, I think in summary, I think the blunt instrument now is to overburden the purchaser. Purchaser is unarmed. The purchaser is not really in, uh, uh, personally in all, in population-wise doing things that show that they care. Uh, so we need to do something different, and the different is what the rub is. I have a little different uh, example which is one of the big categories of waste is providing uh, antibiotic prescriptions to people with viral infections. It happens every day. Um, you, you find providers uh, who, who say they're never going to do this, but they get badgered by every patient who comes in with a cold for an antibiotic prescription because the patient believes, you know, this is the only way they're going to get better, or the patient says, well, you know, I took time off work to come in today. Okay, you say I have a viral infection, but I might get a bacterial infection in two days, and I don't want to take off work. 
So it's, it, there's tremendous pressure on the prescribing professional to just give the patient an antibiotic. They often will justify it by saying, okay, they don't get it from me. They'll go to an urgent care center or a doc in the box somewhere else, or they'll now do telemedicine service to give them an antibody. I, I think in that case, the incentive needs to be uh, that we t- we're letting the physician know we're measuring you on this. And as I said before, there is potentially a consequence. It's a disquality. It's bad. It's not good medicine. It might be great customer service, but it's bad medicine, and we're going to measure that. And that there are a, a number of different methodologies that can be then brought into play. If it's uh, an at-risk physician group, they can sort of say, okay, your, your bonus, et cetera, is, or your uh, profit sharing is going to be partially determined by this. If it's a salaried physician group, you know, their bonus at the, end, at the end of the year can be partially determined by this. So I think there's a lot, lots of things that, uh, that, that can be brought into play once we measure it. I, I think probably the most important one, quite frankly, is the physician's going to look at that and they're going to say, you mean I do this more than anybody else? Uh, and they know it's not the right thing to do. So they actually will, in some way, will often self-police themselves, even without those other I guess they're not really incentives or disincentives to, uh, to do that, but I think you need those. Yeah, and I would add, too, from a Milliman perspective, that we're seeing this begin. We're seeing uh, a demand from the client base for all of Milliman about uh, tiered networks and doing more physician profiling and having uh, a, a more capabilities to identify physicians in in from a quality as well as a price perspective as opposed to the, the previous mantra with just his price. So I think we're starting to see that in a big way, and it's just the beginning. Can you both uh, talk some more about different examples of waste? Well, we talked about antibiotics for viral respiratory infections. I think that's when probably all of us have run into at some point, um, and so I think that's a very, very common one. I think doing tests on people who are low risk for disease is is another one. And there's a bunch of examples on that. And and in fact, this represents a real change in the industry, which hasn't uh, really gone as far as we'd like. So, for example, males over the age of 40, it used to be, okay, we're going to run an EKG on you. We might even have you do a stress test just to make sure there's not something going on that we don't see. You're perfectly healthy. Um, we know now that those are waste, that there's virtually no value to those. However, if you look at what we call the executive medicine industry, which is um, our organizations that basically uh, provide screening services to executives of, uh, of various corporations, they still do all these kinds of things, and they sell it to those corporations as added as added value when the truth is there still is no value to that. But I think th- those those are some good examples that I can think of off the top of my head. Marcos, I'm sure, will add to that list. Well, I think my favorite one is, and I use this quite often when we talk, uh, Dave, it's, it's uh, you know, we had uh, – this fantastic opportunity, the UCLA researchers worked with a Medicaid population at the L.A. County Hospital. There you have the largest homeless and Medicaid population concentrated in an urban area. 
really tough population to engage with. And here was an example where the team with data and clinicians solved an easy, wasteful problem. We had a, a, a large population, so population health, the numbers were big, so it made it uh, uh, easy for an approach. So they chose cataract surgery. So they had a tremendous amount of the Medicaid population who needed to get a cataract surgery. And, and they were able to stratify them into the, a low severe grade of Medicaid folks who were, everyone was being uh, subjected to uh, preoperative laboratory screens. But now we can use data to, s to stratify the Medicaid folks into uh, a tier of low severity ones that we could also make a decision, will we not give them uh, laboratory screens? So uh, the laboratory screens as David said earlier, about 5% of the time we know are going to give uh, results that are outside of range. So if everyone who needed a cataract surgery got these, then a significant portion of those folks were going to have to be delayed and have subsequent screens, a subsequent, subsequent consultation after the preoperative false positive. And therefore, on average, these, this, these people were waiting almost three-quarters of a year to have their eyes corrected. Now, what the, the, the clinician leadership did at UCLA is they said, what if we take that low severity people and uh, omit the laboratory screens? What happens? And what happened was is uh, in six, six months diminishment on the time to surgery on average, that's six months that people could see. That they turned out, they did a back of the envelope calculation uh, and so they said the savings was $1,200. Now, a firm like Milliman, we can go in there and be, we can sharpen the pencil and say what the numbers are. They weren't able to really get to that $1,200 unit uh, value quite readily. We, we have a lot of room there. But you have this predicament where you have a, traditionally an, a, a population which people perceive to be difficult to manage and deal with, Medicaid. You're in an urban center, which L.A. County, who knows uh, how inundated they are and overwhelmed they are with services. And yet they were very poignantly... Uh, going into a subpopulation, a classification cataract surgery. So, and it turned out to be this amazing win-win. Six months, human beings got six months increased to vision, imp improved vision. That's tremendous. Uh, and then uh, also the, the savings to, not only is $1,200, was the savings of the procedures, but you had the savings of the practitioners and the mitigation of having to have people wait in waiting rooms and get a barrage, a battery of testing. So that's my favorite way story right now. And, and we hope uh, we our data analytics and, and the actuarial uh, capabilities of Milliman increase incentives and enlighten more poignant scenarios like that. And that typifies a nuanced, uh, a difficult population that is definable, a nuanced predicament like cataract surgery and a mitigation of uh, tick in the box to uh, mitigate uh, affordability, the waste, the financial harm, uh, emotional harm, because I'm sure some of those uh, patients, well, first of all, they couldn't see. They got vision six months er earlier. And then physical harm, maybe some of them got other additional tests. Maybe not a lot of physical harm, but maybe they got other uh, tests that were uh, uh, inconvenient to being poked and prod uh, on that way to the, uh, uh, the colossal win-win. I think there's some other great stories out there like that. But that's what we're gravitating to as our, our baseline, and, and we hope to jump off of that. Right, and just to uh, 
make sure that it's clear to, in Marcus's what needs to be clarified in Marcus's story is that doing preoperative screening in low-risk individuals has been identified as waste by choosing YC. So that's what, what, what UCLA was building on. Yeah, that's good. I think we're just about wrapping up here, but do you guys have any final thoughts on this topic? Anything you want to share? Maybe ideas about hope for the future? Well, I think, um, quite frankly, I've been surprised <laughs> that uh, the whole issue of waste in healthcare has actually been fruitful, I mean, positively addressed. You know, and, and uh, I, I wouldn't, you asked me a question, can you really do anything about this? And if you had asked me that question maybe four or five years ago, I would have answered maybe. Uh, but what's interesting now is that we're actually seeing all these examples. Uh, th uh, we know of a health insurance company that essentially said, all right, we wanna, uh, we're going to identify waste and we're going to publicize it to providers, yes, but also to consumers. We're going to go direct to our members and they have billboards and educational things on, you know, this particular service is waste. Here's, you know, what you need, what you as a consumer need to know about it. And I thought that was cool, and because uh, I, I didn't expect they would ever do that. And we have uh, several other organizations we work with who have actually, you know, bitten this topic off as something they want to work on, and have actually begun to achieve, to see anyway, and report to us reductions in some of these services that have been identified as waste. So that that I think is a cool, maybe positive way to end <laughs> our little discussion. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I would add to that is very positive as well is the uh, the now more than ever we have the ability to put the waste in context to overall cost of care, and I think that's that's an advantage we have. And and being in the in the the catbird seat of Milliman, having that purview of the total cost, and then looking at what the uh, opportunity is of addressing waste, I think that helps folks make uh, a line and create incentive packages to do something about it and uh, I think that's uh, a, a very um, I think that's we're just at the beginning of creating these value packages and it could be typified by new insurance benefit design it, it could be typified by as we're seeing the first easy uh, bit is uh, adjusting the contracts between payers and providers those are roles where Milliman is going to be at the forefront on and I think we're just at the beginning of being innovative about creating, uh, weaving nuance and value into the conversation. And um, I'm looking forward to it. should be pretty good. You've been listening to Critical Point, presented by Milliman. To listen to our other podcasts, please visit us at milliman.com. We'll see you next time.